dealing once again with prayer, and it's the part of my life I have grown the most in during the past two years, and yet it's the area where I believe I am the weakest in. And so I preach this sermon with a strong sense of how much my own toes are being stepped on by the Word of God. As I was uh, prayerfully preparing the sermon, I felt the ouch of conviction over and over again. But I want our church to grow in prayer, and I want to grow in prayer. In fact, we're going to be spending two weeks on this prayer of Daniel because I think there are key areas that our church needs to grow in. Next week, we'll be looking at facets of Daniel's prayer that should be imitated when we pray for the persecuted church. Today, I I want to just draw out four neglected issues in prayer that can give us confidence in praying. Uh, The four issues are, first, we should start with worship. Second, we must have a biblical basis for our prayers. Third, we must learn to be fervent in our praying. And fourth, we must persevere in our prayers. Now, this prayer starts with worship, with adoration. Another way of saying this is that Daniel sought first to minister to God. That's true, Daniel's heart was heavy, it was burdened with prayer requests, but he still starts by saying in verse 4, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Uh, Daniel begins by focusing his mind on who he is praying to, and it gives him a God-centered focus to the rest of his prayer. Even his confession and supplication is wrapped around the character, the actions, and the promises of God. When he prays for God's people, you see a heart that longs for God to be glorified. When he confesses his sins, he does so with the realization of how this has grieved God. And you can see a heart that longed for God. And the key, I believe, is beginning with God. If you begin with adoration, you're much more likely to be God-centered in the rest of your prayer. Uh, One writer who knows far more of the presence of God in her prayer life than I have uh, said this, As the undiluted intensity of our devotion draws us into the presence of God, we find that the very things that move the heart of God begin to move our hearts as well. If your intercession lacks zeal, try spending some time in telling God who he is to you, what he means to you. Minister to the heart of God. Now, at first, you may have to spend most of your prayer in ministering to God until your confessions and your requests begin to take on that God-centered flavor of Daniel's. And then later on, when your life is characterized by ministering to God, by adoring him, by worshiping him, then a short word of adoration like Daniel gave here may be all that's needed to get your focus in prayer. But until that happens, I urge you to devote far more time to worship and adoration and ministry to God than you do to supplication and intercession. Let me give you some reasons why beginning with worship of God is so important. First, James tells us that as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. The presence of God in our prayers is essential if our prayers are to be powerful. I believe our prayers many times lack power because we have not taken the time to draw near to God. That's one of the things I've been impressed about in the pastoral prayer meetings that I go to. We spend time in silence and inward adoration and then corporate adoration before we offer up anything else. And I've sensed God's closeness. So the first reason, the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Second, as you focus on God and who he is, your doubts about whether God can and will answer begin to diminish and your faith begins to increase. A heart full of God banishes doubt and fear and lack of faith. And so adoration increases faith. Third, beginning with adoration makes it much more difficult to make sinful and selfish requests of God. His heart begins to move yours. You begin to see things God's way. I've had several times when I fully intended to ask God for something, and by the time I finished my time of adoration, I saw how unbiblical my request was. Adoration helped to put my desires in line with his desires. Fourth, beginning with adoration of God convinces us of God's goodness and generosity and delight in our coming to him. It's when we feel distant from God that our minds begin to play tricks on us and we begin to see God as uncaring and reluctant. A quote on prayer that will always stick with me was made by a Reformed minister in Britain. He said this, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his highest willingness. How many of us enter into prayer feeling that God is reluctant to answer us or that there's no point in praying? Prayer is really laying hold of God's highest willingness. But to convince our hearts of that, we need to begin with adoration. Adoration or worship is one of the four great neglected facets of prayer. Now, the second great neglected facet is having a biblical basis for our prayers. Uh, Daniel knew how to fill his mouth with arguments that pleased God, arguments that were founded on the promises of God, the nature of God, and the history of God's actions with his people. And he got it all from the Bible. Now, look at the first promise that Daniel lays claim to in verse 2. He says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish the desolations of Jerusalem. And here was a promise made long ago in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, and then reiterated in Jeremiah 29, 10. Let me just read you the second one of those two promises. Jeremiah 29, and verse 10 says, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Now, some might think that if God's promised it, there's no point in praying. Daniel knew that all God's promises must be claimed. He claimed a promise in Leviticus, a promise in Jeremiah. He was not passive. He filled his mouth with scriptural allusions because he knew since God cannot lie, when he's given a promise and we claim it by faith, that promise will come to pass. But you know, it wasn't just promises that Daniel claimed. The second ground for his prayer was the nature or the character of God himself. Uh, Daniel knew that God would not and he could not be inconsistent with his character, and he could appeal to that fact in his prayers. Verse 9 appeals to God's mercy and forgiveness. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. He's appealing to the fact that this is consistent with God's character. Uh, verses uh, 15 through 17 appeals to God's glory, much like Moses did in Deuteronomy 9. He's saying, in effect, Lord, you brought great glory to your name when you redeemed Israel from Egypt. Now there's reproach brought on your name through the sins of the people. Your name is being dragged in the mud. Restore the sanctuary once again for your name's sake, so that your glory will be evident to the heathen. 
Uh, verse 18, appealing to God's name. He wanted God's name to be exalted. He also appeals to his mercy in the face of the obvious need for mercy. And so looking to the scriptures, Daniel fills his mouth with reasons as to why God should answer in the affirmative. He looks for promises. He banks on God's character. He appeals to how God has worked in the past. Now, an important principle we can learn from all of this is that we need to read God's word before we pray. God's word motivates people to pray as the Holy Spirit works through that word. Look at verse 2. That's what led Daniel to pray. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And in verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request, etc., See, Daniel was powerful in prayer because he was saturated in the scriptures. Now, how do we apply this in our lives? Well, first, the more you understand of the future, that is, the doctrine of eschatology or his promises about the future, the more faith you will have to claim God's promises. And as Second Peter words it, hastening the coming of the day of God because we know what things have to happen before the final day of God. Now, if you think that the idea of hastening the coming of the day of God is inconsistent with Calvinism, you'll have to take that up with Peter in 2 Peter 3.12. Eschatology remains just as practical a motivator in prayer today as it was in Daniel's day. Second application, read scripture before you pray to focus on God and his concerns before your own. Many times this can give a different perspective on the way that we pray. This is letting God talk to us before we burst out with our requests to him. Uh, third application, if you have a forgetful memory like I do, it can be helpful to have a little notebook in which to keep track of prayer requests, and in one column have the prayer request, and the next an appropriate scripture or an attribute of God that forms the basis for your prayer, and in the final column to record answers to prayer so that we will not forget to thank God. An example of what I mean could be the following. I'm praying for a brother or a sister who's uh, perhaps showing no evidence of growth in the Lord, and I might write in the column beside the prayer request, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. And I'll say, Lord, I know I'm praying according to your will. Or I may just verbatim pray the prayer that Paul gives in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Now that gives me confidence because I know it is in God's will. If I'm praying for the salvation of some souls, I might include scriptures like, the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked, along with scriptures like Proverbs 11.30, he who winneth souls is wise, and maybe a verse like Christ's statement that there's great rejoicing in heaven over the salvation of a sinner. See, we don't need to know if a person is elect or not. What we do is we fill our mouths with the best arguments that we can from God's revealed will. We say, Lord, I know that you do not delight in the death of the wicked, that you're grieved with the wicked every day. And since that's true, bring this person to salvation. Make him one less person who grieves your heart. Bring rejoicing to the angels of heaven. You have said that he who winneth souls is wise. I want to be wise, Lord. Enable me to fulfill the joy of that passage by winning this person to Christ. And if we claim scripture and God-given faith, we can have confidence that they will come to salvation. And God wouldn't give faith if that wasn't the case. What about things that scripture does not address directly, like the purchase of a building for church or a traveling salesman getting a new car? 
Well, again, I'd fill my mouth with as many arguments as I could when I make my petition before God as to why he should answer in the affirmative. If I can't fill my mouth with scriptural arguments, I probably shouldn't pray for it because our prayers are to be according to God's will. God has never asked us to pray according to his secret will because we can't know it. We're to pray according to the revealed will of God. I would say that God has promised to supply us with all our needs in passages such as uh, Matthew 6, uh, 24 through 34. Now, God may not consider it a need, but if I do, then I would use it as an argument to present to God. But even if it was not a need, I would present other scriptural arguments, such as God's character as a generous God, your motivation to serve God with what you receive, etc. Anything that you think of to show that this could be used as a tool to greatly advance God's kingdom, to glorify him and to bring help to his saints. Tell the Lord about the bountiful things that he's poured out on his people in the past, even when they didn't need it, even when they didn't deserve it. Uh, verse 9 reminds God that even though they have been sinful, God is merciful and forgiving. Plead his mercy, his love, his generosity, his holiness, his patience, or whatever of God's attributes and promises are relevant to the given situation. And this can give us so much more confidence in our prayers. He says, if two or three ask anything according to his will, that's the Bible, it will be done. The third neglected issue in prayer is fervency and heartfelt sincerity. Charles Spurgeon once said, if you take away the soul from the worship, you have killed worship. It becomes dead and barren after that. Well, I'd say the same about prayer. If you take the soul out of prayer, it becomes dead, vain repetitions like the Pharisees offered. You know, when, when Christ contrasted the Pharisees and the publican praying in the temple, we often focus upon how pompous and proud the Pharisee was and how the publican was beating on his breast in humility. And that's true. But there was also sincerity and fervency in the publican that was totally lacking in the Pharisee. We are not just to go through a ritual uttering words. God wants our hearts to be in gear. Ultimately, fervency, I think, is an issue of the heart, but it will many times manifest itself in how we pray as well. The, the fervency of Daniel's prayer can be seen throughout the entire prayer, but it can be summarized in verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Uh, Let's look at that phrase um, a bit at a time. And I set my face unto the Lord God. This indicates it was no casual matter of now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> there, there was an intense focus upon the Lord. And we too need to take our minds off of the distractions of the day and deliberately try to focus our attention on God as it were to set our face to God. That's where many of us get hung up, isn't it? Our mind wanders. If you have a lazy mind, then you need to force it to be focused on the Lord. And there are different tricks that I use to do that. Sometimes I'll pray out loud. Uh, that helps a lot to put my heart into it and to keep it from wandering. Uh, sometimes I'll walk and pray. Sometimes I'll write down what I'm praying, but I try to focus on the Lord. The second phrase says, to make request, or as the NIV has it, I pleaded with him. I pleaded with him. This was not a casual do you think it would be okay if Israel went back to Palestine now? No, there was earnestness. The way he pleaded, it says, was by prayer and supplications. Uh, the, uh, the first Hebrew word, uh, tefillah, means simply a prayer or petition. 
And uh, the second Hebrew word is an intensified type of prayer. It's, it's earnest prayer or supplication. And then finally, the seriousness with which Daniel prayed can be seen by the fasting and the sackcloth and the ashes which accompanied it. One commentary had this to say. Fasting and sackcloth and ashes are employed as auxiliary means to aid devotion. Fasting helps to keep the mind unencumbered and also reminds him who practices it that he, was, he has not deserved even food from God. To remove clothing and to substitute a coarse wrap strongly remind the suppliant that not even the comforts of good clothing are his right and due reward. Ashes were put upon the head as a token of grief since Daniel sincerely grieved over his and his people's sins. I should point out, that Christ blasted the Pharisees for doing those things simply for outward show and without the heart to go along with it. But in Revelation 11, Christ indicated that his two faithful witnesses would wear sackcloth. And so Christ wasn't completely writing off the use of outward means. He was saying that there needs to be a heart to go with that. And there are still outward means that the Christian can use to focus upon the Lord. Now, since I tend to daydream, I like to pray out loud in my study because it forces my attention to stay with the subject. Uh, kneeling helps me to have a heart attitude of kneeling. Uh, you may find your own outward means that help you to focus upon the Lord, but do not disparage outward means altogether. And above all, make sure you don't legalistically get caught in a rut like the Pharisees did. Uh, the neglected issue is not these outward means, but sincerity of heart and fervency of prayer. Uh, James 5.16 speaks of the fervent prayer of a righteous man availing much. Romans 12.11 says that we are to be fervent in prayer. Uh, the last neglected issue is perseverance in prayer. And you can see that in verses 20 uh, through 23. Uh, because of lack of time, I'm not going to cover that point except to say that that God has commanded us several times to pray without ceasing. Don't give up praying for something just because you didn't get the answer the first time. And don't give up praying because you fear God will be upset with you. Uh, he's told us what his revealed will is, what he likes. Uh, we're commanded to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We must persevere until God's will is obeyed down here just as it is in heaven. It's not that persistence leads to certainty, but that the certainty of God's promises makes us unashamed of coming to him in this expectant and this persistent way. And so be persistent in giving God what he wants. If it's consistent with Scripture, you have the privilege of continuing to present your case before the Lord and of refining your arguments. God loves to hear his people pray. Daniel 9.23 says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. I encourage you to pray with confidence to the one who loves you dearly. Amen.